Welcome to another exciting episode of The Tax Efficient Investor. Listen in as host Michael Johnston demystifies tax-efficient tactics to help you grow your wealth. We break down complex tax strategies and make them simple to understand and easy to implement. From HSAs to IRAs, 1031s, trusts, and more, we cover it all here on The Tax Efficient Investor. Welcome to the show. I'm Michael Johnston. Joining me today to talk about the tax advantages of farmland investing is Josh Guggenheim. Josh is the VP of Acquisitions at Goldleaf Farming. Goldleaf is a hybrid investment and farming company uh, that's managing about $350 million of permanent cropland in the U.S. Josh, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for thanks for having me. So we're going to talk about the tax advantages of, of farmland today, and there's kind of four points of it that we want to go through. Um, I gave a very quick summary there. Before we dive into the the nerdy tax stuff, give us the high level overview uh, of what Goldleaf is, what you do. Yeah, sure. So Goldleaf is about seven years old, and I'd say uh, you know the best way to look at us is probably a hybrid investment company and farming operating company. As far as an investment company, we're probably pretty similar to you know a real estate private equity firm where. We're raising capital primarily from family offices and high net worth, and then we're buying real assets with it. Mm. Uh, you know, you guys have other sponsors on your show who take the money and buy apartment buildings or offices. What we do is we buy and develop specialty farmland. So almond farms, pistachio farms, we have a date farm, we have some uh, wine grapes as well. So the way to look at us is like real estate investing, but we're not doing buildings, we're doing farmland. Mm-hmm. And I say we're a hybrid operating company or hybrid farming company is because we do our operations ourselves. So every farm that we buy, uh, we manage. So if you look at our organization, we're about 100 employees and about 70 of those are farmers. And why that's important is because we control the farms that we own. We're not leasing it to third parties or hoping that a third party farm manager does a good job. We're doing it all in-house. And that gives us better control over the assets and lowers risk. Great. Good overview there. So let's dive in and talk about the the tax piece of this. So we spend a lot of time on this show talking about ways that high net worth investors can be more tax efficient. Sometimes that's moves that they can make individually. Like, for example, I do a backdoor Roth IRA. We talk about funding your HSA as an IRA, uh, a mega backdoor Roth, all these things that, that high net worth investors can do to be more tax efficient. I'd like to also talk about the ways that, you know, if you believe that you can generate alpha for yourself, essentially, by making smart tax moves, all those things I just ran through, 401k, 529, et cetera, you should believe that that companies can do the same thing, right? There's a tax code for individuals, there's a tax code of companies, and there's there's smart companies or smart asset managers who, just like individuals can take advantage of the incentives in the tax code, they can take advantage too. Um, so that's what we're going to talk about t- today is, is how Goldleaf is uh, is taking advantage of some of the incentives that have been laid out in the tax code uh, to minimize the tax burden for the company and for their investors. Um, so let's dive into it. There's, there's four that we wanted to go through today, Josh. So the first one, uh, depreciation, specifically bonus depreciation. How do you leverage this to, to maximize the tax benefits? Yeah, good, good question. So if you think about our strategy, most of the deals that we do um aren't really developments they are buying mm-hmm. existing farms existing okay. permanent farms and you know it's a little bit different i don't know if we have some midwestern listeners on uh today but 
a lot of people think about a, a typical farm might be, you know, a piece of land with corn or soybeans. In that yeah. case, there aren't really that many depreciable improvements. For us, it's different because we're buying farms that have mm. you know, big trees and extensive irrigation, et cetera, on them. Mm. And it turns out that all of those trees in uh, irrigation and equipment and all that can be depreciated. So the way to look at it is, you know, if you're buying a multifamily house, the land can't be depreciated, but the buildings and various other things, personal property can be. When we're buying a farm, all of the trees or whatnot are equivalent to a building, which can be depreciated. Hmm. So that that's the high level. In particular, why it's important for us and why we think we're advantaged versus other real estate asset classes really has to do with uh, you know the TCGA and the Trump tax plan. So what that tax plan said is that um, you can take bonus depreciation, which basically means you can depreciate assets over one year in an accelerated fashion rather than over 30 years. You can take all of your depreciation up front. But according to that plan, you can only do that with assets that have a 20-year uh, life or less. For farming, everything we buy has a 20-year life or less, according to mm. the depreciation code. So irrigation is 20, per, 20 years or less, uh, trees, equipment, farm buildings, et cetera. With uh, you know, general real estate or multifamily, for example, a lot of the depreciable assets don't have 20 years or less. Like the building, the real property right. has you know, 27 and a half. So that can't be bonus depreciated. The personal Got property, it. like cabinets or whatever, can be bonus depreciated, um, but but most of it can't. So, you know, long story short, most of what we're buying can be bonus depreciated, and it has a uh, you know pretty big impact on our investment. You know, by you know, it, it we could talk a lot about you know the tax code or whatnot, but some simple math might might help. Yeah. If you think about, you know, our typical farm, the typical farm we're buying is about $10 million. Of that 10 million, about 5 million is land and about 5 million uh, can be allocated to depreciable assets, trees, et cetera. Hmm. When we buy this $10 million farm, what we're generally doing is we're using, you know, 5 million of debt and 5 million of investor equity. Okay. So what we end up getting is, you know, 5 million of the 10 million is depreciable or will be depreciated. And then we have a $5 million equity check. So what you end up getting is, uh, you know, for basically every dollar that you invest, you get a dollar of depreciation. Right. And most of that, I guess now this year, it's 80% in 2023 can be depreciated uh, upfront. So, you know, if you write gold leaf a check for a hundred bucks, you're going to get probably 80 bucks or so, give or take, of depreciation back within the first year. Yeah. Um, and let's talk about why that's why that's really valuable for someone. So I'm guessing this is when you say you're going to get it back, uh, I'm guessing that means it's coming through on a K1, your your exactly. their, their partnership and they're getting exactly. a K1. So they've got this loss coming through because depreciation is a a, a non-cash expense. Um, so so they can use your investors can use this depreciation expense that's coming through on the K1. If they have other passive income, say they, they own another business that's spitting off some passive income, they can essentially use depreciation to offset other passive income that they've got coming in. Is that right? 
That's right. Yeah. So you can either use this, you know, tax loss to offset future income generated by, you know, a gold leaf investment, mm -hmm. or you can use it to offset other, um, other passive income. That's right. You know, every individual is, uh, every situation is different. People should speak with their CPA. I'm not a, not a tax advisor, but uh, the interesting yeah. thing here is you can take a big gold leaf loss. And then, you know, like you said, if you have a bunch of income from multifamily or office or other partnerships, you can shield that using the loss generated by gold leaf. So a lot of our investors have big, you know, passive income streams or big, you know, re really real estate investment portfolios. And yeah. they love the fact that they can take a loss, paper loss from us and use that to offset something that they've had, um, you know, for years yeah. before. So yeah, paper, paper, paper losses uh, is music to the ears of any kind of tax focused investor, because it means you've, you've got a loss that you can use to offset income, but it's, it's just on paper. Um, it's not actually money going out of your pocket, but you can use it to, to offset taxes. So it's, uh, it's fantastic. You mentioned, you know, of course, you should talk to your advisor, everyone's circumstances is different. For the most part, this is going to be able to offset passive income. So if you're thinking, oh, I've got to, you know, you can't use it to offset your W. Typically, you're not going to be able to use it to offset your, your W-2 income or, or actively earned income. Um, but you can use it to offset passive income. If you can't use it all this year, typically you're able to, to carry it forward. Um, so you'll be able to use it. Uh, you'll be able to use it eventually. But um, that's pretty powerful, being able to get potentially up to, to 80%. I know that's going to kind of taper down here over the next few years. But um that's a, a huge chunk of um of the current investment that's coming back to you in in a loss that you can use to offset other income um and i'm glad you mentioned josh the uh, there might be some midwest listeners i grew up in ohio uh, okay. i live in the, in the west coast now I, I live in oregon so um you're right if you have this you know this flyover country midwest i say that affectionately i, I love ohio um of, of what farmlands are there it, it's as you get out west, I think a lot of your properties uh, are a little further west. Um, but yeah, there's a lot more um, of the the trees, the irrigation systems, these kind of depreciable assets. So I think that's a good note. To, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people's minds when they think farmland, they think uh, in Nebraska and Indiana and Ohio, but uh, a lot of different types of farms in this country. Yep, yep. Um, so let's talk about, well, I know you mentioned that I think you guys have done some calculations about um, one of the metrics that a lot of investors will use, whether it's real estate, any type of private equity is IRR, the internal rate of return. I think you, you all have done some um, some calculations about essentially how, how much of an IRR lift investors can get just from the depreciation piece of it. Right. So uh, and thanks, thanks for mentioning that. You know, talking about, you know, the tax benefits is all great, but unless you can quantify it, it's uh, yeah. maybe less impactful. How we think about it is we, you know, look at our returns, you know, on kind of a, a, a net uh, kind of pre-tax basis and then the net post-tax, which is, mm -hmm. you know, post-tax is essentially including the depreciation benefit. Yeah. Um, and generally what we'll see is, you know, every farm is different. But generally, we'll see kind of a three to five percent IRR lift when you include depreciation. Hmm. So if we're seeing a, a farm that might be yielding, let's say, a thirteen percent IRR uh, net IRR, uh, it's fine, it's good. But when you consider uh, the depreciation benefits, it might be you know seventeen, eighteen percent. And these are long-term holds, right? So yeah. you know if you think about you know thirteen versus eighteen percent over a one-year hold, 
it's not a huge, huge difference. But if you think about, you know, a 13 versus 18% IRR over a 10 or 15 year hold, um, it really matter, matters a lot. Yeah. So, you know, generally that's what we'll see is, you know, kind of maybe low to mid teens in our returns before uh, thinking about depreciation or anything else. But then with depreciation, you're kind of in a, you know, higher teens um, type investment, which is, yeah. in our opinion, attractive for more kind of a, a value add or a core plus real estate play, not something with development risk. Sure. Sure. Yeah. And I, I love that you guys quantify that. That's something that I always harp on is, you know, sometimes people talk to me about tax strategies and I say, well, what are you saving here? And, and you know, you're, you're tripping over nickels sometimes is the, the phrase that I like to use. But if you're talking about a, a three or 5% list, uh, lift, excuse me, um, that's pretty substantial. So I always tell people it's important to kind of understand the, the, the trade-off here of how much are you potentially saving here versus how much complexity are you adding? So it's good good to understand um, what the potential benefit here is. Um, let's go on to the, the point number two, opportunity zones. We we just did an episode on on opportunity zones. I'll link to that in the show notes. Uh, but I think some of your farms are, are in OZ. So for folks who aren't familiar, who haven't listened to that, that episode, uh, talk about how the, the tax benefits of opportunity zones. Sure. Yeah. So um, as your listeners probably know, to qualify for an OZ or to qualify for these types of projects, you really have to have a development angle. Mm -hmm. So I'd say, you know, 70 or 80% of our, our farms are actually not developments. We're buying, you know, existing farms and there's not an angle. Uh, however, the 20 or 30% that are developments often do qualify or often in opportunity zones. And we often structure them to take advantage of the, of the benefits. For, you know, folks out there, uh, basically what opportunity zones are or do is they identify areas of the country. It's by census tract, but they identify historically kind of underinvested, underdeveloped areas of the country. And they give you tax benefits to invest in these areas. Uh, the whole idea behind it is to bring capital away from, you know, places like, let's say, uh, parts of Manhattan or something and into areas of the country that historically have been underinvested. I actually think it's yeah. a, you know, as a side note, I think it's a, a great idea and a, you know, a great thing to develop, um, you know, less focused areas of, of America, but, um, you know, anyway, how to, how you would qualify for this opportunity zone and how it works is if investors invest cap, they can invest capital gains, realized capital gains, into opportunity zone projects. And mm -hmm. then the benefit of that is a few things. One, they get a deferral on the capital gain due. So let's just say you bought a stock for $100 and you sold it for 200, you have a $100 capital gain. You can reinvest that $100 capital gain into an OZ project and you won't have to pay tax on that until 2026. So that's you know benefit number one. And then mm -hmm. benefit number two is if the Opportunity Zone project or the QOF holds the asset for at least 10 years, there's no capital gain on that leg of the investment. So there's really two benefits. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so anyway, you know, with the, with the Opportunity Zones, you have to have, you have, there's a bunch of rules, I won't get into it, but to qualify for an Opportunity Zone investment, not only does your project have to be in an Opportunity Zone, but you have to hit two tests, either a, original use test or a substantial improvement test, which essentially makes sure that the money that you're investing is used to build something new or improve something 
in the opportunity zone. So for us, what we do is we raise a bunch of opportunity zone capital. So, you know, deferred capital gains. Uh, and then buy bare land in one of these opportunity zones and then build a farm on it. So we're basically taking the, you know, low, lower value land, putting on a higher value uh, orchard and then hold it for 10 years and sell it for appreciation. And that appreciation will be, you know, tax free, no capital gains on that. Yeah. And this is this is potentially huge. Uh, my my. Partner Jimmy Atkinson says OZs are the greatest tax incentive ever created. Um, maybe that's a bold statement, but he's not far off. I mean, it, it's near the top of the list. Um, I like to say that the two best times to pay taxes are later and never. Um, and the OZ checked both of those boxes. If you've had a capital gain in the last 180 days, there is a, a window on it. It can be a gain from anything. It can be a gain from you sell uh, Tesla stock, uh, you sell your company, you sell real estate, you sell Bitcoin, um, anything. If you've had a, a capital gain or if you have a capital gain upcoming, um, the OZ benefit can be incredibly powerful. Um, and again, as, as Josh mentioned, the incentive here is to, to drive investment into the low income census tracts, uh, the parts of our country that have historically seen uh, been underinvested in. Um, so a good incentive that seems to be working pretty well. This is also a relatively new program, um, part of the uh, the Trump uh, Cuts and Jobs Act in 2017, uh, driving a lot of an investment. So would recommend anyone out there, if you if you have a capital gain, if you have a capital gain coming up, learn more about OZs can be a, a, a tremendously powerful tool. Um, and then I think there's, you know, there, there's kind of a combination of these first two. So we we're talking about um, depreciation, um, Josh, and we're talking about opportunity zones. You mentioned there's kind of two benefits of opportunity zones. You get to defer your capital gain. And then at the end of the 10-year hold period, uh, the, there's no capital gain tax on that investment. There's kind of a third hidden benefit too, which is uh, no depreciation recapture. Um, so this gets we're getting a little into the weeds here, but if, if you want to maybe give a high-level summary of, of what that means, that would be helpful too, I think. Yeah, sure. So you know, when you're taking depreciation, uh you know, with a project, with a building, with a farm, if you sell later on, you may have to pay, you know, depreciation recapture, which basically means all the depreciation you've already taken, uh, you'll have to basically pay that back, you know, pay that back to the government. So if you took yeah. $10 of depreciation and then you sell at the same value a few years later, you'll have to basically repay the government. Uh, some OZ deals can be structured so that they're uh, exempt from from that recapture, which is a big a big deal. Yeah, potentially potentially very big. Um, so that's that's definitely it's a nice kind of it's undersold with the OZ thing, but it can potentially be a, a nice little boost for opportunity zones as well. Not having that, uh, not having that depreciation recapture. Yep. Exactly. Um, Two other in, you know interesting things I'd say, and thanks for bringing that up. Your listeners probably have heard about other opportunity zones, but in our view. We're pretty excited about OZs for farmland in particular mm -hmm. for a few reasons. I would say, you know, number one is that it turns out that some of the best farmland in the country, or at least in California, happens to be in an opportunity zone. The best soils, the best water rights. Um, a lot of, you know, rural areas of California are um, unfortunately, um, you know, poorer than some of the coastal or urban areas. Yeah. and qualify for opportunity zones and they have the best growing conditions um in the state so long story short we don't think that we're sacrificing asset quality for a tax benefit 
sometimes I feel like other sponsors might buy something or develop something in an opportunity zone, which could mm. be a, a great tax deal, but it might not be a great underlying business case. You know, not all of them, yeah. by the way. As a side note, I'm personally invested in a few real estate developers who are doing work in OZ, so not not everyone. But with OZs, you don't want to do a bad deal to qualify for uh, an OZ. You still need to have good good asset quality, and with farmland, we can do that. Yeah. And then the other issue that is kind of interesting is a lot of other real estate investors have kind of figured out about opportunity zones and have taken advantage of them. And as a result, in certain areas, there may be a price premium actually for land that's in an opportunity zone. Folks will sell and they'll know that there might be more investor capital out there willing to buy because of the great tax incentives. That doesn't really exist in farmland at all. There's no price premium, whether it's in an OZ or not. Yeah. Uh, frankly, most of our brokers have no idea what a what an OZ is. Uh, and one of the reasons I would say that that's the case is because a lot of people buying farmland are farmers and not investment groups. Sure. And the farmers have ordinary income. And to take ordinary income, you can't, it doesn't matter if you buy in an opportunity zone, it has to be deferred capital gains. So they don't right. really have this capital gain that they need to you know, reinvest and defer. Um, if we had a bunch of investment groups in this, we would have that problem. But you know, long story short, there's not a lot of buyer appetite out there that cares that it's OZ or not. So as a result, there's no price premium. Yeah, it's a couple of great points you make there. I mean, certainly anecdotally, I've seen that there's some in some hot markets, you know, the opportunity zones in say Phoenix, Arizona or, or Nashville, Tennessee, kind of that smile, sunbelt part of the country, mm. the big cities there. Uh, tremendous competition among different groups looking to, to buy up land and, and throw up a lot of times multifamily. Um, so you do get a lot of competition. You drive up the prices. It's a point too about, um, you know, I, I like to say that the tail shouldn't, shouldn't wag the dog. You shouldn't just make it uh, an investment because the tax part of it sounds good. That's especially true with opportunity zones because the big benefit is that if you hold it for 10 years, there's no tax on the, the capital gains uh, on the back end. Well, there better be capital gains. There better, right? There better be, uh, yep. there better be an increase in value, or else what's the point of, of not paying taxes on it? It's it's easy to not pay taxes on nothing. Uh, <laughs> it's a lot harder to to not pay taxes on uh, on a big capital gain. So th there better be a capital gain, or else it kind of really diminishes the the point of an opportunity zone. Um, okay, let's let's move on here and talk about. We've got a couple more to to get through uh, the Williamson Act. I think this is something California specific, so I I don't know a ton about this. Yeah, this is California specific. Um, you know, a lot of people say, oh, wow, you guys are invested in California. Taxes must be high. Uh, the income tax is high in California, but fortunately, there's a great uh, program called the Williamson Act, which lowers our property tax in California. Basically, what it is, it's an act that was passed in 1965. And what was happening is that a lot of farmland was increasing in value. Uh, because some of it was becoming parts of urban centers. Mm -hmm. So, you know, areas like Fresno or Orange County, et cetera, now pretty big cities used to be a lot of farmland. So yeah. as farmland became more developed, prices went up. And what ended up happening is that a lot of farmers were sitting there and they were like, hey, I can't. This is before Prop 13, by the way, which 
regulates property tax increase in California. But what you end up happening is that what you had was that a lot of farmers couldn't pay the property tax bill because uh, prices were going up, but the economic output of the crops was not necessarily growing and matching it. So the state passed a rule that limits property tax and ties it more to kind of farm production and economic value of the crops rather than uh, the value of the land. So at the end of the day, what we end up paying is something like 70 basis points of property tax on average. In California, in general, it's about 110 basis points. So we get something like a 30 or 40% reduction in property tax because we're in this Williamson Act and we're ag focused. So, yeah. um, and, and you know, that's important to think about, you know, you don't want to buy a property, especially if you're gonna hold it for a long time to have kind of uncontrolled really high property taxes it can really eat against your returns and we fortunately don't don't have that issue in california yeah and it, it, it's what you'd be doing with the land anyways right you're buying it for agricultural purposes it, so you're not you're essentially getting a tax benefit i looked it up the california department of conservation their estimate is that agricultural landowners save 20 to 75 percent on their their property tax liability each year sounds like you're right in that in that ballpark if you're saving yep. uh, about 40 basis points on a 110 so um free money essentially right if you're going to be doing it anyways yeah um, definitely yeah okay let's let's talk about uh the, the there's an export uh angle of this too that i knew i knew nothing about um so let's hit the last bullet point here of the tax strategies you're using yeah so one example would be it's called ic disc and what ic disc does is incentivizes companies to export goods and it's in you know the reason the government wants that is to help fix our trade balance mm -hmm. and essentially uh income that are, that's generated by these exports qualifies for a lower tax rate so it qualifies for the same tax rate as qualified dividends so that's probably like 20 percent plus you know 3.8 of uh you know net investment income tax rather yeah. than ordinary income tax which is much higher yeah. Uh, and for us, that's important because, you know, something like 80% of California almonds are exported. So on our almond farms, we can say, hey, 80% of our income is generated by, um, you know, products that are exported. This, of course, has to be proven by processor records. But by proving that and showing that we're exporting a lot of these goods, we end up qualifying for a significantly lower uh, income tax rate, which is a a nice, you know, program from the government to, you know, incentivize export and and fix our trade balance. Yeah, that's great. I love that you touched. I always think it's nice to, to understand why these tax incentives uh, exist. So I love that you kind of touched on that. And yeah, this is essentially um, it's essentially tax arbitrage. It's a way to to move some income uh, out of the, the ordinary income tax rates, move it into the lower uh, dividend and, and cap gains rate. So. You know that the, the uh, ordinary income rates can be upwards of you know getting close to thirty-seven uh, percent. Um, if you're able to to pay, if you're able to move shift some of that tax burden to a, a twenty-three point eight percent bucket, um, that's that's arbitrage. Um, we won't go into all the mechanics of how it works. I'll put a link in the show notes if anybody really wants to wants to dive deep. But essentially, it's setting up it's setting up a separate entity, um, and then the parent company, the operating company, um, is paying a, a commission um, to, to that entity, and it's capped at a certain percent of, of the export sales. Um, so you're you're shifting some of that income. The, the operating entity gets to write it off because it's a, a deductible expense, 
uh, and you're shifting it into into an organization where there's a lower tax rate. So um, kind of a neat little uh, neat little incentive there um, that you're able to take advantage of. So Josh, I, I, that's great talking through these. I mentioned earlier, you know, the tail shouldn't wag the dog. You shouldn't invest in something just because it's got some some nifty bells and whistles from a tax perspective. Um, so so make the case for us. What's the what's the investment case for for cropland in the U.S. outside of the of the tax advantages of it? Yeah, thanks. So it's really pretty. I'd say pretty simple. One, I mean, the big thing driving this is there's a great macro opportunity here. The specialty farmland that we're buying is a really supply constrained asset. So it, that basically means there isn't a lot of land in the world where our mm. crops can grow at all. And there isn't a lot of water. Uh, and that's actually you know decreasing every year as cities grow. So you've basically got this very supply constrained market. And at the same time, you've got a bunch of demand growth. So if you think about, you know, the products that we're growing, almonds and pistachios, these are kind of, you know, high-end, um, healthy plant-based proteins. There's a lot of demand for it in kind of the Western world as people eat healthy, but there's also a ton of demand in new markets. 40, 50 years ago, people in China and India, frankly, you know, the average person didn't have the income to afford um, goods like this and to be able to buy um, kind of, you know, really, you know, I'd say high-end, fresh, sustainable, healthy proteins from other countries. Sure. That's totally changed as those countries have matured. Uh, India is actually the largest growth market now for California almonds. So the exciting thing here and why we're investing and spending all this time in it is really similar to, you know, other theses that you've seen in other real estate. When the supply can't grow, but there's a bunch of demand for the product. There's good returns to whoever owns that asset. Yeah. So from you know that's probably the high level you know a high level. Um, a few more things I'd say this is a very inefficient market. So if you think about you know farmland in the U.S., it's probably about it's a three billion dollar asset class, but only something like thirty to sixty billion of it is owned by institutional investors. It's very underinvested. Mm -hmm. If you looked at offices or multifamily, I think those are both like three or four billion uh, trillion each. Those are much more institutionalized. So as a result of being in a place that doesn't have a ton of investor, uh, or I guess institutional investors or professional investors yet, you can pick up good uh, good opportunities. We the last three deals that we bought were something. One was like a nine and a half percent cap rate. One was a ten and a half percent cap rate, and the most recent one was about 11% cap rate. So our view is that because it's an inefficient market, you can find these great these great deals that are at higher cap rates than other real estate assets, uh, where you, know, you might have been able to find those types of deals in, let's say, self-storage or um, manufactured housing 20, 30 years ago. It's really hard to find those now in those markets. In yeah. our market, those opportunities still exist. Uh, from an operational perspective, I'd say we're we're at an interesting inflection point as well with agriculture. There's all ton all kinds of like interesting uh, automation technology, water technology, genetics technology that are making uh, it basically easier for farmers to have better margins. 
So it's an interesting time kind of operation to invest as well. And, you know, last but not least, I'd say what I like about this asset class is that there's a lot of ways for it to go right. If you think about what's driving our returns, a lot of it is, you know, cash from crop. We farm a crop and then we sell it. That's what we already talked about. There's a great, you know, supply demand dynamic there. But we've also got a bunch of land appreciation going on. Farmland in, in the U.S. has appreciated about 6% per year historically. Our assets also have really senior water rights. Oftentimes they're actually senior to uh, local cities. So there is an option in the future where we could actually, you know, uh, well, we just think our water will appreciate as water becomes perhaps more scarce in cities grow. Um, you know, there's a big appreciation angle. You know, last but not least, there's obviously a development angle, too. If you think about, uh, you know, we're buying in l land when it's low use yep. in farmland. These Central Valley cities, Fresno, Bakersfield, uh, Stockton, Modesto, et cetera, continue to expand. And there's a good chance that a lot of those, you know, the farmland that we have now could be used in the future for for different development purposes and trade for a much, much higher um, price, right? You know, the best farmland now might trade for 20 grand per acre, 30 grand per acre with the best water rights. Housing development in California, bare land in those types of cities might be 150 or 200 grand an acre. So there's big upside there. Always, uh, always good to have options. Uh, that's a great summary of the investment case. Um, Josh, my last question for you, if folks are interested, they want to learn more, if they want to see what, what funds or deals you have open, where can they go to connect with you or to find more about Goldleaf? Yeah, so we are Goldleaf Farming. You can find us online at goldleaf.ag. Uh, or you can reach out to me directly at josh at goldleaf.ag. And, uh, you know, any any of your listeners, we'd love to uh, love to talk to. So really, you know, would be would be happy and no, uh, no question is a dumb question. So happy to do that. Yeah, great. Well, I appreciate you uh, coming on here and letting me ask uh, some dumb questions about the, the tax nuances of this. Um, I learned a lot. I think this is fascinating. I didn't know a ton about the, the tax benefits of farmland coming in. So uh, this has been a great conversation. Um, Josh, want to thank you for coming on today. Really appreciate it. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review on iTunes or Spotify to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.